The Lifestylist, episode 89, featuring Abby Galvin. I'm Luke Story, a former celebrity fashion stylist and founder of School of Style. For the past 20 years, I've been relentlessly dedicated to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of health and spirituality. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. Hey you, out there in the cold, getting lonely, getting old, can you feel me? Hey you, standing in the aisles with itchy feet and fading smiles, can you feel me? I love Pink Floyd, man. What a great song. I always think of those lyrics every time I want to start the show by saying, hey you. And that's the next thing that pops into my mind. But when I say, hey you today, I'm saying, hey you, do you know how fortunate you are? Do you know how much gratitude you should have in your heart right now for hearing this episode? Not because of me, of course, but because of our guest, Abby Galvin. I discovered Abby on a recent trip to New York as I stumbled in her yoga class and just had my damn mind blown. Abby is like... A master wizard of something called Katona Yoga that she's been helping to develop and teach for the past 25 years. And this is a style of yoga I've never heard of, I've never practiced. I've done a lot of yoga over the years. I'm not like, you know, the ultimate yogi, but I've been around a bit. And this class just blew me away. It was so powerful. And I just knew when I looked up at her, sweating there, bent up like a pretzel, that she had something going on in there behind those eyes. And uh, right away after class, I just went up to her and bum rushed her and was like, hey, I know you don't know me. You might not even know what a podcast is, but I have one and I would love to interview. And she's like, yeah, cool. Let's do it. Show up here Tuesday or whenever it was, you know? And so I came back, took another class and then proceeded to sit down with her like right after class was a trip because I was like, I don't know, it's, it's a hardcore kind of yoga. So it's like, imagine going to the gym or something and then like sitting down with some headphones and trying to have a, you know, a reasonable, cognizant conversation with someone. So it's kind of funny. But anyway, more to the point, Abby is just, I don't know, man, she's next level. I got so much out of sitting down and speaking with her. I could have sat there for hours. I think we did about an hour or so. And, uh, just really, really wise, beautiful, intelligent woman. You know, she's been at this stuff for a long time. She is not a spiritually bypassed uh, Instagram yogi. She's the real deal, y'all. So I'm really pleased to bring you this episode with her. And uh, one thing that was interesting is that I actually found out about Katona Yoga and Abby from a listener. And if you're if you're that listener that I met at at the Womb Center at that sound bath experience. Would you like DM me on Instagram or something? Because I'd really like to thank you in person. This random person just came up to me at the sound bath at Womb, which is down the street from uh, the studio where I met Abby. And they're like, oh, I listen to your show. You got to do Katona Yoga, Katona Yoga. It's like, okay, okay, okay. And I actually put the note in my phone. And then I did my due diligence. I looked it up, looked cool. And then I ended up doing a show on it. So here we are. So thank you so much, anonymous listener. What was really rad about this interview, though, too, is that the space that we're in happened to be Keith Richards' old loft, which if you know anything about me, if you've heard the show before, I'm like so sprung on Keith Richards and the Rolling Stones. He's my all-time, all-time, all-time favorite musician. So it was really neat to be able to record in a space that had that energy. It was pretty rad, pretty rad stuff. It's right there on the Bowery. 
Okay, anyway, so the things we cover in this episode are as follows. How and when did Abby find Katona Yoga and what is it all about? The other forms of yoga she's practiced and the current state of affairs in the yoga scene at large. And the fact that the purpose of yoga was originally intended to prepare the body for meditation. It wasn't like to get ripped, it was just to get your mind right. And her belief that most yogic movement is not inherently natural to humans. I always think, oh, we should like get into natural movement and do yoga. She's like, uh, no, dude, it's totally unnatural. Why she believes the concept of making origami folding out of your body is more powerful than simply stretching. The importance of strengthening the nervous system to deal with the day-to-day challenges of life. And how the patterns in the body directly mimic patterns in nature. And why Katona Yoga mixes Taoist Chinese theory and Indian Hatha Yoga, and how did that actually happen in the first place? How the Taoist principles of pattern, yin and yang, and nature play into the Katona practice, the role of sacred geometry in Katona Yoga, and why do they use chairs and so many various props in this practice of yoga, and why is that so crucial to its effectiveness? What sort of physical transformations Abby has seen in all of her years as a teacher? Then we talk about the science behind joint function and how they relate to the human skeleton and structure and how Katona Yoga actually makes your bones stronger. Really cool stuff. How the body's organ systems are affected by this practice. Turns out everything is interconnected through the nervous system. Really fascinating point of view that Abby shares on that stuff. Why community and the teacher-student support and interaction is so crucial to this practice. How Katona Yoga uses various props to create scaffolding to retain the body's structure throughout the postures. The purpose of yogic breathwork and its effect on the body. Then finally, how to live your actual life as a yoga practice rather than leaving it on the mat and why she believes yoga is not exercise. And then finally, (laughs) the question of course I had to ask is how does Katona Yoga affect people's sexuality? Because this type of yoga just really moves the energy. And so I was curious how it affects you on that level. And um, God, there's just so much great value and so much information given here. I swear I could have sat and interviewed Abby for five hours. Like we just barely touched the surface and, uh, and really packed a lot in. So I'm very grateful to be able to deliver this episode to you. And speaking of delivering episodes, make sure that you check in next Tuesday for number 90 featuring J.P. Sears. And in case you don't know that name, you might know him as the ultra spiritual guy. Yeah, that's right. The guy with long red hair, the purple shirt and the headband that makes fun of every goddamn thing that I do. So I'm like, definitely the most funny episode I've ever done, but at the same time, maybe the most deeply spiritual. So check in next Tuesday for that. And thank you so much for listening to the Lifestylist Podcast. I look forward to bringing you the next episode. Today's episode is brought to you by my friends over at earthrunners.com. If you follow me on social media, if you know me, you know that 95% of the time I'm not wearing traditional shoes because they suck and they're really bad for your body and for your feet. So I'm always wearing my earthrunners, whether I'm trail running, hiking, going to the beach, flying on an airplane, or even going to a party in Hollywood. Because unlike most minimal footwear, earthrunners actually look really dope. They have a great design. So they improve your biomechanics, the way that you walk, because 
essentially you're born to walk barefoot and earth runners give you that ability without getting your feet dirty and gross and getting kicked out of restaurants. But what's even cooler about earth runners is that they're grounded. They have conductive thread in the straps and a copper plug on the bottom that keeps you electronically grounded to mother earth. It's fantastic. So good for you on so many levels. So if you want to check out earth runners, go to earthrunners.com and enter the code Luke 10 to save 10% off your order. So go to earthrunners.com, enter the code Luke 10 and your life will be forever changed for the better. This episode is brought to you by my friends over at Organifi. I discovered this product a few months ago and it has changed the game for me. Everybody knows that green juice is good for you, right? Here's the deal though. Couple disadvantages to your average cold pressed green juice. A, a lot of times it comes in plastic, not good. B, it's usually loaded with sugar up to 25 grams, which is basically like drinking a green Coca-Cola, not happening. Next is they go bad. You can't leave it sitting out and they're really bad for travel. So I love my green juice. That's cool, cold pressed. I get the sugar-free ones, I'm into it. But Organifi makes a green powdered superfood that comes in these little packets that are portable and you can take with you. So I keep them in my car and in my bag and on demand. Anytime I have a bottle of water, I can pour one of these in there and have an instant green juice. Alkalizing, energizing, gives you mental clarity. It's fantastic. It's loaded with 11 superfoods. A lot of the green powders not only taste gross and are overpriced, but they'll have like 200 ingredients. And I'm always thinking, how much of each ingredient is actually in there, okay? These 11 superfoods are the important ones that you need, like turmeric, chlorella, wheatgrass, spirulina, mint, moringa, ashwagandha, lemon, beets, matcha green tea, and coconut water. And it's sweetened with monk fruit, so it's got a zero glycemic index. It's fantastic stuff. So if you want to check this drink out, work on your health in a way that actually tastes good, good and is super convenient, here's what you do. Go to Organifi.com, that's with an I, Organifi, enter the code Lifestylist and save 20% off your order. You guys know I always give you a hookup if I'm going to tell you about something cool that I discovered. So again, go to Organifi.com, enter the code Lifestylist at checkout and save 20%. It's really good stuff. Abby Galvin is the owner of The Studio, a New York City-based yoga studio teaching Katona Yoga. She's been honing this practice for the past 25 years and has a strong student base from all around the world. Abby's instruction is informed by her own creative process as a filmmaker and from her exploration of the therapeutic process as a psychoanalyst. She's learned over and over that truly participating in any formal process of self-exploration leads to transformation, whether it be physical, psychological, or intellectual. Her goal is to engage students of yoga in the dialogue between their conscious and their unconscious selves because it is through that effort that we potentiate our own growth. It's her intention as a teacher to cajole each student in the most rigorous effort to be grounded, to grow upwards, and to participate in the creation of their best selves. Welcome to the show, Abby. Thank you. So for those of you listening at home, I just got done doing not Abby's class. I did that the other day. That's how I got hooked into this whole thing. But I just did Danielle's class. And we did something called uh, Katona Yoga. And so that's primarily what we're going to be talking about today. And I just, I got this from a recommendation from someone that I ran into at the Womb Center. I did a sound bath over there based on a recommendation from two guests that I had, uh, Cindy and Carrie Lynn from Cat Beauty. I'm at the Womb Center and afterward they go around the room and ask for feedback 
I gave my feedback, and this girl comes up to me after, and she's like, are you Luke's story? I said, yeah, how did you know? She said, oh, I heard your podcast. You got to try Katona Yoga, Katona Yoga. And she made me put the note in my phone. And so I ended up coming here and taking your class. What was it about hearing your comment that she made the association? She just recognized my voice, (laughs) which is always weird. That happens when you have a podcast because, you know, no one really knows what you look like. Uh So it's not like you're an actor or something like that and people recognize you from some TV show. But it happens sometimes at conferences and things like that. I'll just be talking and someone will overhear me and they come up and tap me on the shoulder like, are you Luke's story? I listen to your podcast. It's really fun. Wonderful. Yeah, it's cool. So she did that. And I find so many guests on the show just from recommendations from listeners because they know the kind of subject matter that I like to mm-hmm. bring to the public. And um, so she's like, she's like, no, I insist. You have to find Katona Yoga. And that's, all, that's the only word I had. I just put that in my phone, ended up in your class and was just like, blown away not only by the practice but I could tell that you had a wealth of knowledge and experience that my audience would really uh, resonate with so thank you so much for joining me here wonderful so I'm like (laughs) I'm kind of out of breath because I literally just got done with the class like got worked so hard and then just came in here and set up you know two video cameras and then my audio equipment so I'm like okay I can't wait till you talk so how and when did you first find Katona Yoga? Because based on my research of you, it's something that you've kind of developed, right, over the years. Like, well, what, How did you come into it in the first place? Well, okay, so about 25 years ago, I met Naveen Mishan in Katona, where I brought up my children. It's a town in Westchester. And Naveen had developed this amazing uh, way of doing yoga. And I had been doing yoga for a long time, but not like that. And... Over these years, she has developed it, refined it, you know, renovated it, renewed it, put it out there, and taught it to me. And um, through that, and working with her, and working with myself, and working with students, and, you know, we've also taken our our own separate kind of turns because we came from two separate sorts of emotional and intellectual arenas. Right, right. I came to yoga through like uh, an old boyfriend, like when I was 18 years old, just looking for a way into my interior world. And that took me eventually, not deeper into yoga, but at that time it took me into the psychoanalytic pursuit. And then that took me into filmmaking and it took me into, you know, all sorts of other, but when I came, uh, when, but I've done yoga all the way through. Then when I met Naveen, it was like, I had like a chemical reaction, First to her, I fell in love with her, and we became very close friends. And because of that relationship, we studied together, and I studied with her, under her. She mentored me. But we were close friends. We were the same age. I see. And so it was a very unique sort of mentorship because we were also friends. Right. I understand that. And so we had this passion in common. Right. And so I learned through her, under her, over her. You know, we had a lot of... We had a lot of contact. Right. And so when, uh, then she opened up a studio in Chelsea six years ago. And that was also when I moved to New York ah, from okay. Westchester. When my children grew up, it was like. That's interesting because people usually start out in the city when they're young and then move out, you know, into the suburbs and have kids, you know. I did. I, I moved to the, you know, I was in the right. city, planned to stay in the city, got married. Right. We moved to the suburbs. Oh, okay, okay. So you did, you did two runs in the city. Okay, yeah. cool, cool. Well, I always was going to return to the city. I was never right. quite myself in the suburbs. Right. So I knew I was going to move back. Right. But being in Katona was a fabulous thing in every way. It was such a great town to bring my children up in. And I met Naveen and yeah. did my yoga and became, you know, 
who I am because yeah, of it. Seemed to be part of your destiny because look at you now. Completely. Right? Yeah. yeah, it was wonderful. So when we moved to Chelsea, the studio in Chelsea that Naveen opened up with her daughter, um, it gave me a real platform to really explore what it is to be a teacher because when we were in Katona all those years, it was really me honing material more than anything. In Chelsea, it was really my personal journey into being a teacher, which is really what I feel I came to be. Yeah, I can tell. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, you, I love teaching. You can tell it's not a passive art for you. Like you're yeah. very much engaged because yes. I, I noticed when I came in the room, I mean, you knew I was new at, to your studio because you'd never seen my mug in here before. Right. But there was a lot of tension, not only to me being new and not knowing what the hell I was doing, but you were very much like on top of everyone in the room. Maybe there was, I don't know, 10, 12 people, maybe 15 right. in the room or something. And I noticed that. I mean, I really observe teachers because I, mm-hmm. you know, have learned from so many great ones myself in my life. And I could see how you were tuned in to everyone in the room. Like you weren't missing right. anything. Well, my know, pinky toe would be like out of place. You're like, yeah. Luke, <laughs> you know, it's like, I was like, how did she notice that? So, well, I think it's yeah. with anything that you love to do and anything you do well, it's because you've developed the vision, the overview, like in filmmaking, when you get to the overview shot, it's sort of earned. You don't start with an overview. You might start with a detail and pan out, or you might start with a wide shot. The overview's earned. Right. And it's like that in anything. Once you have, you know, being a teacher or developing material or teaching good material or adjusting someone, touching someone, which is a big part of the way that I teach, is the capacity to develop your vision. Right. More than hone a specific skill or, you know, know how to touch someone or, or know how to do an asana or do a pose in a certain way. It's really not about that. It's really the capacity to develop vision and technique. Awesome. Because, well you know, vision is an overview and technique has to be something that goes beyond the personal. So when you started out, you had, so if you've been doing this for 25 years and you had a few years of doing yoga before, what type of yoga were you practicing before that? And have you experimented with any other styles along your path in those 25 years other than Katona? Well, it's very difficult not to because a lot of these yoga practices are a amalgam of a lot of different, not just yoga techniques, but other techniques. Because people who really, when they reach a certain place in their life of mastery, what they really have done is use everything they've ever done. Right. It's a compendium, everything that you are. So it's impossible not to. So there's a lot of kundalini in our practice. You know, we have hatha in our practice. We use Chinese theory in our practice. So yeah, I've tasted all of them. And I love the Kundalini work and yeah. the teachers that I found. I love um, Elena Brower and the kind of um, work that she brings. Yeah, she's going to be on the show soon. Oh, I'm excited. Yeah. Not surprised. Yeah, yeah. Um, she's wonderful. And just who she is um, inspires people. You know, she's a real influencer in that just how she holds emotional space for people. You know, and her gift is that there can be 400 people in the room and you think she's talking to you. Right. And that is, you know, you can't teach that. That's, That's like the like, sign of a sage. Yeah. I, I remember when I was uh, t- late teens, a lot of members of my family used to go over to India and they were disciples of Sai Baba and mm-hmm. uh, Satya Sai Baba. And one of the stories, and I was really impressed, they'd come back with these stories of all these miracles that he would do. And one of them was that during Darshan, he would be taught, like my two aunts, my dad's sisters would always go together. They were 
avid devotees and he would come out and darshan and he would be looking at one of them and speaking directly to one of them and then after darshan they'd be like oh my god i can't believe sai baba came and talked to me and said those things and looked me in the eyes and then the other sister was like uh no he was looking directly at me talking to me in that moment and there was all sorts of weird bilocation things where He'd be in two places at once and having people simultaneously having an experience of his presence, just really crazy stuff. It was actually one of the first things that turned me on to sort of Eastern mysticism and mm-hmm. yoga and all of that is when people seem to have those. And I don't know whether all of those stories are necessarily true. I wasn't there. Well, it was their experience. It was I mean, there. Yeah. So it's true to them. You know, yeah. there's well, another crazy one, too, where like I went to Darshan with him some years ago before he died. And I don't he was speaking some language that I wasn't familiar with. But there'd be um, these small groups he would meet with after Darshan, and his devotees were all international. So there'd be like Germans, Italians, Americans, etc. And it's said that everyone in the room heard him speaking to them in their native tongue. And someone would come out like, oh my God, I can't believe he was speaking German. And then the Italian said, no, he was speaking Italian. Really mm-hmm. weird stuff. I just, I love that kind of crazy yogi magic. So charismatic. So you've been in the game of yoga for a long time in New York City and New York in general. Um, what trends have you seen like come and go? To me, I've been doing yoga, I don't know, probably 20 years now, mm-hmm. um, different styles. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me now that it's worldwide more popular than it's ever been. Ha- mm-hmm. Have you seen phases where it comes in and goes out or has it just been like a steady rise in popularity? Um, you know, it depends what vantage point you look at it because it's very much been kind of co-opted by the fitness world. Right, right. And you know, that's a good thing because the fitness world really needed more imagination to it. And, you know, the spiritual world needed a little moving to it. And the Kundalini world kind of could use more of the form work. And, the, you know, so it's sort of like how things integrate. And that's really what progress is. It's like that it became more dimensional. Right. That's interesting. That's it. That, I like the way that you observe that because I think the first yoga classes I ever took were probably at the gym and I'm not even like a big fitness yeah. guy. It's just, I think, cause I hated everything else at the gym. Right. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, yoga, that seems easy. I'll do that. You know? And so started out with that sort of like power yoga and stuff. But yeah. I was also into meditation and spirituality at that time. And then eventually mm-hmm. I found a Hatha studio. It was very traditional, lots of chanting, lots of Sanskrit, you know, they pass out the little cheat sheets for the mantras and Lots right. of music, and I was like, "Oh, this is cool!" Like, yeah. I I liked the strength and mobility and flexibility that I was gaining. But then the purpose, I had this teacher Mas Vidal, who I've also interviewed on my show subsequently, um, he contextualized yoga in the way that the whole purpose of it is to prepare the body for meditation, mm-hmm. so that it's a really a spiritually different pursuit. And and I liked that because I found, wow, after yoga, like I do feel very elevated and right. conscious, and I'm able to stay present. And yeah. It, you know, balance my emotions and my thoughts. And so I came at it from that perspective. But you're right that like in the fitness world, especially just when you walk into a gym and you see people doing these machines and these repetitive movements that are totally unnatural that like, you know, an antique person (laughs) would have never done repetitively. You would never sit there for four hours and lift up a rock you know, or in, right. in the same position, you know, right. it's just like, it right. seems so weird to me. And then to integrate yoga into that, at least you are moving your body in a way that's kind of more fluid and natural and not so repetitive and like mechanical. Right. You know? But there's a lot of things about yoga that's not natural at all. It's actually quite counterintuitive. Most healing or spiritual experience is counterintuitive. You're going above your frame of reference. You're going beyond where your first nature tells you you can go. And that's really what insight is. 
So a lot of yoga for the way that we teach it is really not natural. It's unnatural. It's interesting. It's really can you go where you don't know you're not even going? Can you open up a piece of you that really is a blind spot? Can you see something that you haven't seen before by turning yourself in a direction that opens up a liver, that flushes a kidney, that opens up the windows, the lungs, so you can see a higher vision? And that's when people change. Interesting. Wow, that's cool. That's a cool perspective. Yeah, I guess, I guess you're There's right. There's nothing like, really natural about yoga. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I guess I think of it as more natural because... People have been doing it for longer than well, they have been bench pressing. People think that it's natural if it feels good. Right, right. Right, which is very right. different than something that is a discipline for well-being. Right. Okay, so let's get into the practice of Katona specifically. So there's this Hatha influence, but then there's also this um, Taoist piece, right? Mm-hmm. And I noticed just in doing the class, there seems to be a lot of sort of sacred geometry. There's just a lot of emphasis on the alignment, not so much like, you know. Well, think of it not as alignment. Think of it okay. as attunement. Okay. You know, that you're, think of it as an instrument that gets tuned. That, oh, now the tone is good. The tension is good on the string. If it's a violin, the tone is right. So think of it more as attunement and the alignment comes. So really, you're like tuning your instrument so that you can play in the communal, in the orchestra, in a class, so that you measure up so that we, you know, if there were six people in this room and I would give everybody a different cake recipe and not give them the ratios, well, your cake would be different than my cake, right? Because you might make an angel food cake and I might make a fruit cake because I'm very earthy. You might be very airy. You've got a lot of fire. So yours is going to be a cake with a lot of heat in it. You're going to have a good rise to it. You know, mine might be earthy and a little dense because I'm uh, pragmatic and earthy and grounded. So everybody's poses start out with their nature, with their first nature, with how they came. Eventually, all these six people should have the same cake. All these people should have the same pose so that our work is very much about conforming to an archetype. Or if you will, when we talk about sacred geometry, it's the capacity to use the idea of origami folding rather than stretching. Interesting. Yeah, I perceive some of that was going on. I think that's that's one of the primary things that I noticed that was a little bit different. It's not like how far you can stretch, but it's more like the shape that you're in. Right. And 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 I like that in folding, even the last pose that I did today where you're, I forget what it's called, but where your knees kind of, you're on your back and you- A plow. You sort of, Okay, yeah, it's like a hardcore plow yeah. where you're like really smashing in like one of those little, you know, uh, curly cute bugs, those roly poly bugs, you know, yeah. that like curl into a yeah, ball. and we become you... a snail in a shell. Okay, right, yeah. right. So in a plow, your chest is on your thighs, your armpits fit your knees, your tongue is on your palate, your hands are on your feet or around your legs, and so that you have a, a pose where you fit yourself. And when you fit and you have all those connections, it gives you leverage to move currency through it, energy through it, ideas through it. Um, it, it is um, good for the nervous system. It calms down the nervous system so that you can think better, feel better, hear better, articulate better, so that it gives you real leverage for efficiency. And efficiency is well-being. And so when something fits, it's like a cake that comes out of the oven It's been timed well, it's been mixed well, it's got good ingredients, it has good ratios. 
it's like a cake. It's like making a cake. Can you make a pose that really suits you because it fits, not suits you because it's familiar, some but that the, it works? Yeah, that totally makes sense because some of the things that I notice in this practice and just yoga in general, like the movements that I'm asking my body to do, there's some visceral memory that at some point I was able to do that. And it's sort of like when you look at a, a, an infant, right? Uh-huh. The way that they're able to move and they're so flexible and bendy and they fall and they don't get hurt. And it's like somehow, I, I guess just in our um, sort of sedentary lifestyle and the way mm-hmm. that we spend a lot of time sitting, sitting and not moving typically, whether you're in a car you know, working at a computer on and on from the time we're put in school, right? I think that's why I hated school. I was asked to sit there in this hard-ass chair for hours, and it's like my mind would just wander because my body was so imprisoned. But in the practice of yoga, I I still have so far to go. I don't know if I'll ever, ever be able to get back to that pliability that I had as a kid, but it feels good to be leaning in that direction. It's like well, we think you can. Okay, cool. So have so have you? Because the body is designed to fit itself. Right. So when you're saying like you're able to fold and collapse and use your body in sort of an origami shape, have you seen people come in like today, Danielle was like, oh my God, your hips are really locked up. We got to work on that. I'm like, I know my hips are like made of cement. Mm -hmm. So have you seen like just really- But that's only because you use the doing of the lower body, which is the legs. The being of the lower body is the pelvis. And most people sit on their tail- so their lungs come over their front and their vision's too low. And instead, if you sat at a right angle on your perineum, sitting at a right angle in the hip with the antenna above you, your plug in a socket below you, your potential's available in front of you, your back is your past, so it supports the potential moving forward, you would eventually start to use your pelvis and that's how you develop more pliancy, fluency. So not in just this joint, but in every joint because the body follows organic pattern. So the ears are the same size and shape as your kidneys. The shape of the the arch of the foot is repeated in the back of the knee. It's repeated in the perineum. It's repeated in the lower back. It's repeated in the neck. It's repeated in the throat. It's repeated in the palate. So it is like your thumbprint. So your body is designed to work as nature's pattern which is really what we take from the Chinese. The Chinese Taoist part, right. The patterns, right. The patterns in nature are found in the patterns in your body. That's interesting. That's trippy stuff. Yeah, when you started to touch on some of that in class, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> that really piqued my interest. I was like, I, I need yes. to talk to her more. Well, That's theory fascinating. theory piques interest because theory without practice is not embodied and practice without theory is flat and authoritative. You know, do it because I say to do it. But do it because, you know, you'll have more incentive to do it because you'll have an experience of well-being when things fit when they're efficient, when the cake comes out right, when you know how to tie a tie and there's a perfect knot, when you know how to knit and you can knit something that you can wear, that you fold an origami boat and it can float. That is when form and function create well-being. So when form and function meet, would you say that that's where you're most likely to achieve a flow state? Yes. whatever you're trying to do? Yeah, which is really being in the moment. Right. Being present. How present are you? And when you give theory in classes, it keeps people present. It keeps them from unraveling. It keeps them from doing it because you say you should do it. It keeps them from a wrong way and a right way because this work is not, and nothing is, binary. It's not right or wrong. It's not this or that. It's this and that and that and that and that. Because we are spherical in nature and not linear. 
you use the linear to set up something that's dimensional and voluminous. Right. So this yogic practice then is sort of a practice of non-duality. Very much so. On the physical, mental, and spiritual plane then. Yes. That's interesting. Yeah, I think that's something that appeals to me too about this practice and just the studio in general, the vibe you have going here, is that it's very playful. Yeah, it's you know very what I mean? Like, yeah, very. Like we have our mats facing each other yeah. because this is not school, and school should not be part of the military. Right. You know, it should <laughs> right. not be. We did not. Uh, we should not be warriors when we come to yoga. Right. It should be joyful, and it's communal, and we touch each other. Yeah, here. I noticed that, and I don't. It's funny because there would have been like. I think when I was more self-conscious some years ago, I would have been really weirded out, like coming yeah. into a class and having to face other people. And just, I was really yeah. more just paranoid about like someone touching me or me like adjusting someone and them getting freaked out. Like I was just, was much less open. But coming in here now, I, I guess I've become a little you know, right. more free. Well, it's also self-selective. You know, people get off their mats who know what they're doing. Right. And we have a lot of teachers here. Right. And we have a lot of teachers from other places who study here. Right. And it gives their own practice more dimension. Yeah, I and mean, so it's those people who really get a sense. And we teach this a lot. We teach a lot of um, adjustment workshops so people know how to adjust people in poses. Yeah, I like that. I mean, today, like there was one person that was a teacher that was working the front desk, came in and was like working with me. Then Danielle, the actual teacher of the class, is working with me. Then other people came up and gave me tips and like adjusted me. It's, it's super cool because it's like there are things that you just can't sort of figure out or do yourself without a little bit of help. Right. Well, you have your own neurology, your own unconscious, your own personal ways of doing things. But usually people's unconscious, habitual, personal style, if you will, um, really holds in all the damage, all the physical propensities, all the ways you think. It holds that in, and that's why um, to work archetypally and not personally is really where insight comes. Because really to learn something new, to go beyond what you came with, is really the capacity to be conscious. Yeah, I think that's the thing that's cool about the communal aspect and it being sort of playful and free. Like, not everyone finishes a pose at the same time. You know, it's not, mm -hmm. it's, it's very like unrigid. But I think what's cool about mm -hmm. the assistance from whether it be other teachers or just other classmates is that you'll be in a pose and you think you can't go any further because you literally have a limiting belief about your body's ability or, mm -hmm. like you said, a stuck emotion. Because I'd, I've often thought, like, there, there's some stuck emotion like in my hips from childhood abuse and like weird stuff like that. I just get these correlations that like, ah, I can see how there's like an emotional trauma that's related to a part of my body. And sometimes that emotional trauma is like locked in. Mm -hmm. And when someone helps you and adjusts you, all of a sudden you find yourself doing something that you didn't honestly believe you could do. But right. that other person adjusting you, whether it be a teacher or a fellow student, they know that your body's capable of doing that. And so it's sort of like their belief well, overrides yours. They're not involved right. in your emotional life. Right. Because, and if they were, it wouldn't really help you. Right. And so, you know, we very often say that, you know, it doesn't matter why someone can't move their hips, so right. to speak. What matters is, uh, at first, you work from the outside in. You just do the doing, you know, and the insights start to come. And as you move deeper into your own practice, insights like that, that are more personal, will come. But right. first, conform to an archetype instead of doing what you think. And describe what you mean by conform to an archetype. So a pose, for example, a dog pose is a 60-degree triangle. 
which is the archetype of strength, structure, stability. So plug in your hands, plug in the balls of your feet, bend your knees, get your hips up in the air so that you have a little crescendo in your back, a crescendo in your throat, a crescendo in your knees, the crescendo in your, you know, a little arch. And you start to embody the pose's archetypes instead of using what's available to you. Right. Like, I'm going to use my shoulders because they're the strongest aspect of me. I'm going to use my legs because they're strong. Instead, use everything. Because when a pose is fully articulated, fully expressed, it's archetypally expressed, not personally expressed. Personally expressed, you're going to use what's available. Right. Archetypally expressed, you're going to embody an archetype. You're going to embody its principles. You're embody that set of conditions. Or a twist, for example. You don't twist as far as you can go. You twist on a plumb line. You go 180 degrees. You breathe on the side that your head is facing. The same conditions in every twist, rather than I'm going to twist and squish myself around. Right, right, right. Because then you're going to be sitting in a shoulder, you're going to squish one kidney, you're going to be stretching one foot. You know, it's like, yeah. you know, then all you have again is your, per pers your personal propensities. Yeah. And it's of often without like instruction. And again, that's something that I like is all the feedback here. Mm -hmm. It's hard to tell like how you're not actually in the archetypal pose. Like you think you're doing it. You look to the person next to you. You're like, yeah, that's what I'm doing. And the teacher's like, no, dude, you're, you're totally bent over this way or that way. Right. You can't really see yourself well, or feel yourself. Well, because we're all off center, spun out, confused, invaded, evaded, all of us jostled by life. So we all come in with all sorts of personal propensities or things that we think or ways that we are trained. And being in a class is really a way to be able to um, tune your own instrument better, to work in the communal better by um, reinforming the personal. Have you had experiences where students get all freaked out about someone coming up and touching them and helping them with a pose or something? I have been teaching for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> so tell the answer, Jackson. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's always some but you yeah. know, as a teacher and as a mature person, you know, like I'm sixty two years old now. Yeah. So wow, it's you not look even great. right. It's just wow. not that I'm a great I'm teacher. I'm gonna keep doing whatever you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even that I'm a good teacher, it's that I've lived this long. It's yeah. I've been in a room like and I really I love people, you know, it's like I like all the humanity. So I'm attuned to it because of also how I've been attuned to it for this long. If someone, you know, it is my job to know that someone's going to have an acute nervous system and they're not going to want to be touched. Right. It is my job to know that someone is aching to be touched. It's my job to know who's going to be late for class and what that means and who's going to be, who has to leave early and who's hiding in the back and who needs to be in the, right next to me. It is my job to have, you know, as the first question that you asked me, it is my job to know, to have an overview, to be the leader in the room. Yeah. You know, to know... Where is everybody? Yeah, I can tell that because when I came to class, I was, I think I got here like two minutes late and everyone was already all using all their props. I was like, ah, shit. And oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. I ended up over in the corner, kind of like where the chairs are hanging and stuff. And it was a little right. awkward spot, but I couldn't really get my head up to see if there was another spot. And like immediately you were like, Luke, move over here. Like we have a spot for you. And I was right. like, oh, that's cool. It's, it's, a, it's a nice feeling to know that you're sort of being taken care of and looked out for. Right. So speaking of, of the props, that's another really interesting thing. And for anyone um, listening to the podcast, I encourage you to go to um, their Instagram. And those of you that are on Instagram, it's tagged and it's also tagged on Facebook. But on your Instagram, you get to see the use of the props and stuff. And it's very unlike 
any type of yoga I've ever done. We're sitting in these metal chairs and there's a lot of chair work. There's a lot of blocks. There's a lot of straps mm-hmm. and wooden poles and all kinds of stuff that people are constantly Well, a lot of this is from with, the you know? Iyengar method. Ah, okay. But also we use them slightly differently. So think of blocks as bone and think of our straps as ligaments and think of our sandbags as muscle. That, you know, and then if you think of our poles as, you know, it's a boundary. So it's like scaffolding for the body. And then after a while, you take the scaffolding away and the body has been informed by its, you know, because we are uh, shapeless in a funny way. And what the scaffolding does is it allows us to let go of our personal investment in how we're doing a pose. Ah, that's cool. That's a really interesting description. Yeah, because today I was doing down dog with my my body creased at the hips over the back of one of these metal chairs. Right, so think of yourself as being the jello in a jello mold. Right. The chair is correct. Right, right, yeah, yeah. The chair is just holding that boundary. The chair is symmetrical, yeah. Well, what was cool is I was like, oh my God, this is like the most dope dog, down dog I've ever done. Yeah. Because I had that assistance and I could sort of use the, the weight and the gravity in my body to right. really like dig into that and make right. that Right, it that informs angle. where you're going. Yeah, the scaffolding. That's very well put. I like Instead that. Instead of someone telling you what to do, your job is just to conform to something that has symmetry, that has a shape. So it's your job and that's the same in a practice. It's your job to be the body that uses the practice you don't suit the practice to your foibles. You suit your body. You become the person to use the practice. Cool. And that's how people change. Cool. That's how people get informed. That's how people renovate their structure. Does every class start with chair work or just the two that I happen to come to? No. Oh, okay. Some people start with those cat cows. Oh, okay. We start with that a lot. Oh, okay. Sometimes yeah. the Same class with Kundalini, is too, too. Yeah. That's always the first thing. Yeah. yeah. And if we have like, you know, sometimes the class is so big, I can't start with chairs because I only have 14 chairs. <laughs> right, right. So, but if it's smaller, we can start with those. Sometimes we start, when people come in, even before a class starts, very often people come in, they put themselves on blocks in their upper back, in their lower back to do supported back bends yeah. or supported forward bends. The funny thing about the chairs is like, I don't know, I just rolled with it both, both times that I've, I've come, but... I feel like when I watch someone else, when I look at them, my mind will tell me like, oh, I can't do that. I'm going to bust my ass. And I'm just like, oh, well. And I just kind of start figuring out how to get into it. And it's like, it's actually surprising like how easy it is once you just start moving around. But you definitely like for me, I get the thought like, oh man, I could really hurt myself here. But then you just don't. You kind of figure it out. It's cool. Right. Well, if you look at a block and you're using blocks, blocks are cubes, squares. Right. They're real geometry. So their measure is their measure. Your right. measure is going to be personal at first. You're going to use the block to like measure the right angle so that you have, so that there's something that um, you have to measure up to. And what about um, the use of breath work? Is that ever incorporated? Very often, Pranayama, yes. like that whole we thing? We do a lot of pranayama here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have, our, our, we have hour-long pranayama classes. Ooh, I got to try one of those. Absolutely. So a lot of it is from Kundalini, and then a lot of it we've refined and kind of reworked as our own sort of flavor. And Naveen, who's quite genius at all of this, also has imbued the practice with all sorts of, oh, we have all sorts of things. Cool. 
Cool. So yeah, I mean, there's a million breath techniques. Some of right. it's from Kundalini. Some of it we made up ourselves. Right. Um, some of it is um, wrapping the breath with orbits that start like the Matakchia breath of of grace and effort, the breath of the seasons, the breath of time, the breath of um, embodiment. So the breath of looking out into the world. So we have a lot of uh, we have a lot of breath work. Cool. So, awesome. Yeah. yeah, I love that. I was actually doing some yogic breathing in the cab right over here this morning. Well, like as you, <laughs> you said, know? the asana practice really prepares you for the breath work. Right. So the asana is like building the cup. Right. The pranayama is filling the cup. The meditation is the drink. Right. And so it prepares you to go deeper, deeper and deeper in. Asana starts from the outside in. Pranayama starts to um, work the interior. The, and have a real dialogue between the conscious and the unconscious. Meditation brings you deeper in. It's conscious work. It's like psychoanalysis for me. It's conscious work. First, you set up the conditions. You lie down. You come twice a week. You tell the story of your life. You pay on time, and you leave on time. And that's sort of the contract. Within that, you tell the story of your life. You know, you start to, and it's through the repetition of the reference of transference and the constant working on that relationship that people go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper in to affect change. If you're anything like me, you're a huge podcast fan. That's, in fact, why I started one. But there's one thing that I'm not a fan of, and that is trying to remember all of the resources and recommendations that either the host or the guest mention. Well, I've taken the pain away, my friends, and created a wonderfully clickable newsletter that I'm going to send you every week. To get on my email list, it's super easy. All you have to do is go to lukestory.com, click on Join the Evolution on the homepage, Enter your name and email, and each and every week I'm going to send you every single link, resource, and recommendation that either me or my guest mention on the show. So no more trying to remember it, write it down, Google it later. All that has been taken care of for you. All you got to do is go to lukestory.com and sign up for my newsletter, and I'll send it all to you for free. Here's the bonus, though. A lot of the links that I'm going to send you have sweet, exclusive discounts associated with them, whether it be Bulletproof Coffee or some of the other brands I work with. I beat the hell out of these vendors and get discounts for you, and I'm going to send those to you as well. So sign up for the newsletter. You will not regret it. And now, back to the interview. What about the idea of taking your yoga practice into your life. You know, I think yeah. for myself at certain points and definitely people that I find that are newer to spirituality and meditation and yoga, it's sort of this segregated part of your life where you go to a meditation class or you read a spiritual book or you do yoga and then you go back out into the world and you're a total asshole. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? It's like, how does one integrate the teaching into traffic and divorces and deaths and, right. you know? So, you know, that's a great question. The first thing that you do the first thing that you know is that whatever you do on the mat, you have the potential to do in your life. So that's the one thing. So that when you say, oh, it looks like I can't do it, and then I do it, you know, that little nugget, the more you do it over and over again with good form, with, you know, informed practice, the more you can do that in your life. So that's sort of like, oh, it's sort of like the little shallow way of saying it. But in fact... When this information moves through your unconscious, moves through your neurology, moves through your whole nervous system, your kidneys change, your 
thyroid changes, your self-expression changes. So kidneys are all about fear and kindness. Lungs are all about grief and sadness and courage. Liver is all about your creativity, your anger, your depression. So all of these, as they move through a practice, through repetition, you change the person that you are. Interesting. So, yeah, that's, that's cool. I'm glad you brought that up because that was another piece I wanted to talk about because in the class I took with you, you made a lot of references to the nervous system and the different organ systems and how they're interrelated sort right. of within the structure. Of right, your... and that's why this is not just exercise. Right, right, right. That's why this is a, a, a way to um, move through insight to so, go above your frame of reference, to be able to use your antenna well to really see what's out there, to have a big overview, to use your third eye as your um, insight. It's like spirit rising. This is really, so your third eye is not an eye, it's a prism, so you can see 360 degrees around you. Your third hand is not a hand, it's a radiant sphere. So this is your volume, it's the eye of the practice. And we're always using the eye of the practice to mediate What's on your right? What's on your left? What's in front of you? What's behind you? The more you start to use richer and deeper and more dimensional voluminous information, the more it becomes you. So it's not so much... It doesn't matter whether you're here or in your relationship or in your job or in your... It's you. It's you that are... Yeah. So you sort of become the practice inherently, whether you like it or not, by setting the intention and having sort of the discipline to keep practicing. Yes, through repetition. It's not like you can mentally make yourself go out in the world and be a yogi without... No, I think people find that that is what is happening. Right. That through repetition... Um, and the dialogue, and yeah, I mean, that's why, like, with exercise, they call them reps, right? right? Well, that works for them. Right. You know, with, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's a rep or a repetition of something that's therapeutic. It's the same. Through repetition, you know, you um, develop the capacity to have an insight. Something that I've noticed definitely is doing all types of yoga is that that sort of grit that one Uh must possess yeah. In order to just follow through with some, a class. Like today, I was super tired when I walked in here. I yeah. almost was like, eh, I'll just show up for the interview. I said, no, I really want to make the, you know, today's practice part of the interview and really get primed, which I'm, I'm very thankful Wonderful. that I did. Yeah, it's a great but, thing that you did. you know, there are, right when I walked in, the first thing we did was like some crazy chair pose. And it was a little painful. It was a little uncomfortable. I mean, not painful to the point of an injury. I'm able to sort of ascertain if I'm doing something dangerous. It wasn't dangerous. It was just my body was like, whoa, haven't done this before. Mm-hmm. But going through so many classes and so many experiences like that where I just like center myself and I'm able to overcome that physical challenge mm-hmm. enables me, I feel, to walk out of the studio today and like there's honking and freaking jackhammers and just right. like chaos going on in New York City where I can actually walk out there and sort of have the grit to withstand, you know, my yeah. nervous system can withstand that overwhelming stimuli or you know that scary text or email that i get from someone where there's a conflict it's sort of like i've built up this callus of dexterity and the ability to kind of handle things yes well we start all of us with a first nature what you came with all the ways that you get overwhelmed you know people get mostly overwhelmed in their heart so their first nature is really what your inheritance is what you came with your propensities what you do when you have an impulse you know, what you do when you can't help, you know, what you do when you get overwhelmed, what you do when the going gets rough. And then you have your second nature, and the second nature is how you're trained. You know, do you have good techniques? Do you have good skills? Do you have training? Do you learn how to read? Do you learn how to swim? you learn how to drive? you learn how to knit? you learn how to tie a tie? you learn how to tie a shoe? You know, all those things. 
And then you have your third nature, which is your third eye, your third hand, your third foot, that mainframe of the implicit that you get when you combine the first and second natures. When you use them well, you develop a third nature, which is what are you going to do with those? You know, so it's not like how, it's not uh, so important of how you came here or what you were trained, but how you're going to use them both. What are you going to do with them? How are you, you going to develop a soul, a self? Like how are you going to evolve? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Hmm, cool. God, I could go like, I want to I go off on the spiritual track because I have more questions about that and just other things. Uh, there was one thing that I wanted to cover here on my list. I'm sitting here very uncomfortably with my laptop in my, uh, in my lap because I'm using my iPad for something else. Um, but there's something... No, you're sitting uncomfortable because you're sitting Cause slightly I, on your tail. I am? Okay. And you're not sitting on your perineum and your pubis isn't forward. So your back keeps hunching over. There, how's that? That's beautiful. Okay. Much That's better. the thing. Now, got- you can move your feet because if your feet are at a right angle, then from your hips to your knees to your feet, you have a right angle that gives you this hip joint. That Much better. Right? So your lower body is really your foundation. Your- I'm only going to interview yogis from now on, so <laughs> it's not so <laughs> uncomfortable. Uh, the question I wanted to ask, though, that I thought was unique is uh, I have a brother, Cody Story, who's really into like functional movement and fitness and joint mobility and joint health and things like that. And he and, I, and he's done a lot of yoga. He studied um, Ashtanga yoga for a couple of years. Uh-huh. You know, he gets it, he, you know, the flexibility and all that. But he always has a beef with um, some yoga practices where there's not um, a preparation of the joints. And so you just start getting all bendy and crazy without actually, you know, lubricating the joints and, and kind of getting them prepared to do some of the, um, you know, the various um, postures. And one thing I noticed here is in the beginning of class, there's definitely an emphasis on working with the joints before like you do a long hold or something like that. Is that deliberate? And how do you feel about like yoga and how it either supports or sort of um, has the potential of damaging your joints? Is that something you consciously like have put in there? Or is it just yes, kind of part well, of the thing? Joint space is like origami folding. So the 12 major joints are like, think of them as the origami folds. So instead of bending from your back, which is why you are uncomfortable, when you're more comfortable, you're, you're sitting in joint space and joint space should be clean. So like there's, there's no pain in space. So when you're sitting in a joint, so like when you're really fully articulating a pose well, you don't feel anything because you're really in space. It's when people are folded wrong. And that's why instead of thinking tight and loose, because people are really not tight and loose, they're folded wrong. So if you look at an origami fold with a square piece of paper and you fold the corners, well, wherever the corners don't meet is where the issues are going to be. So if you're not folding in a joint, you're bending from the back. And after a while, the back is taxed. If you're folding from a joint, your chest will find your thigh, your armpit finds your knee, then you're fitting yourself. So getting... So yeah, we do a lot of... The first thing we do is measure the wrist joint right. because the wrist and the wrist and the collarbone and the collarbone house your lungs. Yeah. Interesting. So when you fold... Yeah. Right, so that when you... Yeah, go ahead. Because, well, I, I think like in sort of the... And, you know, I don't put down any form of yoga or fitness. Everyone do whatever makes them happy. As John Lennon said, whatever gets you through the night, like it's mm-hmm. fine with me, you know. Mm-hmm. But... I have hurt myself in some yoga classes because my joints aren't ready to do what the teacher's asking us to do. And there's like a lot of emphasis on like stretching your muscles and becoming bendy and flexible, where for me, I've always sort of inherently known that like it's a problem with my joints. Like my joints are stuck. 
Well, in it's so many not places. even that your joints are stuck. It's the folds that are wrong. So okay. think of people who are really bendy you, and very flexible. Flexibility is really a booby prize because many people who struggle with flexibility, who are overflexible, and they will be the ones to say, uh, it's much tighter. It's much harder to be tight than loose. Much harder to be loose than tight because loose people struggle with boundaries. Tight people hold form. You can open up a tight person and they are so happy. It's very hard to contain a loose person. So it's much easier to open you up when you are, quote, tight because you're just not in joint space. And it doesn't mean, it's that you're just not, it's even not that your joints are wrong, it's that there's something that you don't know. You know, and people don't do it wrong on purpose. People are not uh, wrong or bad. There's just something they haven't been trained well to do. It's just something that they don't know yet. They should come here. Right. <laughs> I agree. Well, I'm sure some people are going to now that we've done this. I hope and, they do. And um, also something that I've heard you kind of mention is the bones, you know, which is that structure. And yeah. that what we're doing here actually yeah. makes your bones stronger. So what does this practice do for like bone density or how does that work? Well, when you're in the center of a bone and you put um, weight on it, and it's weight-bearing, you're pressing and lifting off, moving energy through. And so it makes your bones stronger. Also, muscle will conform to the bone when it's correct. It'll conform to a bone when it's not correct. But when it's correct, it really holds the structure in place. So when you're in the center of your palm, you're in the center of your shoulder. You're in the center of, of a lung. You're setting up the conditions for organs to be happy and function well. And when you're sitting in the shoulder, so you can sit this way and the organ will move all the way back and not be very happy, but it'll function. When you sit this way, oh, the organ has nice housing due to the bone. And then it'll fill up, it'll take and eliminate, it'll be soft and juicy, it'll have enough housing to do its job well. And you have a sense of well-being. So structure really holds uh, the organs well. And what do you think this practice does or yoga in general, or katona, however you want to contextualize it, in terms of one's uh, relationship to their own sexuality. And I ask that because various types of yoga, kundalini yoga specifically, have seemed to, at the same time, awaken sexual energy in me at times, but also brought it more into balance, Mm -hmm. where it's not like running wild. Maybe that's part of like being 46 also, you know? But there's definitely like a component of sexuality but, yeah, within, yeah. within the body because you're yeah. dealing with the energy systems well, and sexuality, sexuality is such a powerful energy. Right. So what's well, your take on your that? Your lower body is your sex, money, food, and water. Okay. So your lower body really houses your instincts, that. Your it, Yeah, it's your first nature. It is that primitive desire. It's your first fire. It's the fire of the planet. It's primitive. And that houses your sexuality. Your torso... Your second floor is like the handling of your heart, the handling of your liver. It is the way that you're competent, and it gives you capacity to take in and eliminate. It's the eye of the practice that houses your third hand. This is your third foot, which is your umbilical cord, your root. This is your sphere, your dimension, your volume, your personal shrine, and this is your vision, your intuition, your clairvoyance, your clairradiance, your, the way that you have a relationship to the universe. And your capacity to use yourself well is also your capacity to make good contact. 
Because when you are well-adjusted, you're going to make good contact. So whether it's how to do a job interview better, how to be more present, how to make better sexual contact, it's everything. Because it's not just the primitive will be sex. It's really how well-adjusted are you? How well are you picking your partner? How well do you see? How well do you intuit what you need versus what they need? How well do you intersect with somebody? So it's everything. It's never one thing. It's everything. In your personal life, other than the practice of yoga, what other spiritual practices do you find have helped you to awaken and just relate to your life in a, in a healthier, more, um, you know, in a happier way? Like, what do you do in terms of like prayer, meditation, um, other studies of spiritual literature, things like that? Everything. I read fiction. I love novels. I read them. I, 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 uh, that to me, it calms me. It gets my imagination really uh, revved. It, it's just, you know, and so everything that I do. I was in therapy for a very, very long time. I love the therapeutic work. I find it really emotionally and spiritually rigorous. I found it so enriching in every way. Being a parent, like, kicked my ass into the next life. I mean, just like, uh, it, just everything where I my children. I love seeing them grow. Being a parent, having that kind of contact, helping another being form. I mean, it's just like it was the most profound thing. Being a twin. I'm a twin. I have this. Um, she's my life. Uh, you know, being able to have contact and a kind of unconditional love was amazing. Having parents that age and watching that relationship change has been amazing and both ecstatic and sad. I mean, just like, you know, everything, watching myself grow old, just everything, having friends and being able to have contact, opening up a studio, being a businesswoman, just like, you know, everything, having, um, learning from uh, Naveen Mishan, who was my friend and mentor for so long, it has been, you know, changed my life. Just, you know, there's nothing that hasn't had that that's helped me learn better skill technique, my emotional life, my impulses, the way that I see things, the way that I make contact with people, the way that I consider things, how to be thoughtful, how to be humane, how to be kind, how to love. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. That's really great. That's great. That's I'm, why when I... I want to take that little excerpt and make a, like a trailer for this episode. That was, uh, really, that was really beautiful. Well, that's why when I heard your personal story and, you know, you gave us this very rich, like cinematic, uh, you, know, you know, saga of your youth, and then you made this list of all these things that you did. I meditated. I did, you know, it's like, wait a minute. It's like, so you skipped over how you got there to where you are now. You know, that's the rich part that yeah. it wasn't always, you know, that you weren't always happy or that you weren't always well-adjusted or we couldn't always have had this dialogue together. You know, that For it's sure. how you get there that I find so rich. I, you know, any kind of therapeutic, spiritual, educational progression is a real sort of self-cajoling of consciousness from habitual to um, something that has insight which is the capacity to be more conscious. Amazing. That is beautiful. Thank you so much. So as we come to the end of the interview, 
I ask my guests always the same question at the end, and you sort of just answered some of it, but what I always ask for is three recommendations of teachers or teachings that have influenced you specifically. So you've been my teacher today. The people listening and watching to this interview are being taught by you. Mm-hmm. Who are like three go-tos that, um, that have influenced you or that you'd like to recommend to people? Okay, well, Naveen is the first. She was my latest mentor, and I've had a lot of mentors, but um, because we were also um, friends and peers, that's had the richest effect on my life, my teachings, my education, and just who I am as a person because of all the contact. Right. And does she still teach at the Katona yes. Yoga in She what's teaches the town? in Westchester, Westchester in okay. Bedford Hills, which Bedford is now Hills. one town over from Katona. Gotcha. Okay. So people can find her at, yes. at her website. Okay. Yes. And then uh, two um, others. And if you go to our website, she'll be on it. Oh, cool. Okay, yeah. great. Who are the other people who have... Oh, Elena Brower is just beautiful and wonderful, and you should be in her presence because it's just... She should be on everybody's bucket list. I got, I got that sense because I always have the opportunity, if someone will, is willing to do my show, I can do it over Skype. And I just... I don't like doing them on Skype. Like I like to sit down no, with contact people. contact is everything. Yeah, right. so she was like, you know, I'm like, yeah. well, we could do it on Skype because she lives in New York. I live in LA. Yeah, and she's generous, like, generous she's soul. Like, she said she's going to be yeah. in LA. I was like, we'll just wait so I could just grab you for an hour in yeah. person. Cool. Right. Okay, one more. Um, uh, as a teacher, well, you know, I had a lot of these rabbis who I, you know, but... <laughs> That's cool. I mean, you know, some people even give like, it's like their grandmother, you know, taught them. Um, well, Philip you know, Roth about, has been like, I think, one of the most um, amazing uh, writers of this century, of our generation, of my generation. And um, his books were like really seminal to my um, development as a person. And the Old Testament. Awesome. That's actually referred to by a lot of people. Really? Yeah, the old, the old or New stories, Testament, just the Bible right. in general. They're the archetypal stories yeah. of the hero's journey, of transformation, of archetypal, uh, you know, uh, of archetypes to live by. You know, it's like, you know, some people have the Greek myths. Well, you know, I'm just well-schooled in the Old Testament. Awesome. That's I am great. a Jew. Thank you. Thank you for that contribution. Thanks for being on the show. As we come to a close, where can people find your website, information about you, the studio, and all that? We'll find our website. Um, <laughs> You're like, wait, what's the URL? We're going to put it in the show notes anyway. Okay, put it in the show notes because yeah. we're just developing our website. We've only, yeah. been, um, we've only been open for less than a year. Right. And um, our website is going to be finished this summer. Okay. But there's some, I found something. I think it's... The studio.com. The studio... The studio.com is how to find us. Okay. Yeah, and you're and for those uh, listening, oh, come on in and tell us. <laughs> someone, someone just poked their head in the door. Studio.yoga. Studio. Studio.yoga. Okay, cool. Thank you. That was our manager, Sophia. <laughs> that was great. Thanks, Sophia. So, studio.yoga. And you guys, it's really easy to find. It's on Bowery and Houston. 302 Bowery between Bleecker and Houston. There you go. It's a lovely studio. It used to be um, Keith Richards' loft. Are you serious? I used to live here Get many years ago. the fuck out of here. Keith, <laughs> there's Keith Richards' energy in here? Yeah. No wonder I loved it here when I came in. He's my <laughs> all-time favorite musician. Well, he, we, yeah. there's a picture of him meditating here. No way. Yeah. That is amazing. Yeah. Wow. What a great note to close on. Well, again, yeah. thank you so much for coming. We're going to shoot everyone out the links to all your sites. Um, and you guys definitely follow them on Instagram. As I said, there's yes. like really amazing uh, photographic 
documentation of this practice and everything you guys do. So thank you so much and namaste. Namaste to you. Once again, mind blown. That's the sound of my consciousness exploding into the universe, y'all. That's what happens when I get to interview geniuses like Abby Galvin. God, I'm like, I'm recording this back in LA now. I I want to go back to New York to uh, take her class so bad. I'm like, please, Abby, move to LA and open a studio up here so I can practice with you. I don't think it's going to happen, though. She's quite the New Yorker. However, I did find a teacher out here by the name of Fern Olivia, who I've become friends with, that knows this practice and learned from Abby. So I think I'll be hitting her up for some classes now that I'm hearing this episode once again. So thank you so much for joining me. What a great opportunity it is, as always, to share this episode with you and to track people like Abby down. I can't wait to uh, find out who I'm going to discover next. It's always exciting for me to get recommendations from you guests and from people that I meet out in the world and have the opportunity to bring great teachers and teachings to light like we did in this episode. Speaking of bringing something to light, oh my God, you guys, next Tuesday's show, as I said, number 90, the magic number 90. If you're into numerology, 90 is a big number and it's also a big number because our guest is JP Sears. Dude is freaking hilarious. If you haven't seen his YouTube videos, you have not lived, my friends. So subscribe to this show so you don't miss next week's episode where we talk about, uh, I don't know, the psychology and spirituality of humor, really. Um, I don't know. We talk about a lot of stuff. It, it kind of started out funny, but then we ended up getting pretty deep, you know, and really exploring our, <laughs> our own uh, spiritual paths and uh, just really cool stuff. What a great guy. Like so funny, but also so conscious and humble and smart and awesome. And again, just like, a gift to be able to present people like that. So tune in on Tuesday for that show. Thank you so much for supporting what I do. Come over to Instagram and say what's up. My handle is at Luke Story. See you there. Bye. Don't forget to go to earthrunners.com and use the code LUKE10 to save 10% off your minimal footwear. What's even cooler is they now have some custom wool tabby socks that allow you to wear the Earthrunners in colder weather. Really cool. Earthrunners.com, LUKE10.